Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Jan Chipkes, the co-founder and director of Studio D Radio Durance, a research, design and innovation consultancy. We talk to Jan about how he approaches risk in doing fieldwork and the how-tos of designing an environment where strangers problem solve together. We talk about access and locally sourcing informants, data collecting, usage and ethics, dealing with bias when evaluating potential impact of data. Lastly, he shares his view on time pressure and why he sees it as a great forcer for prioritization. We hope you enjoy it. Um, hi, friends. We are here today with Jan Chipkes, the founder of Studio D. Hi, Jan. Hello. Good morning from Tokyo. And good morning from uh, Amsterdam. Jan, I'm really excited that we, we finally managed to, uh, to make this happen. Um, so before we, we dive right into your uh, fascinating line of work, I'd like you to maybe tell me and a bit our listeners um, about you. What has your career path been so far with um, research? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I did. A, I studied um, user interface design back when that was um, uh, a nascent uh, practice um, in the UK and worked for a few years at a research institute based out of Bristol University. And then in 2000, moved to Japan and I worked in Nokia Research Lab um, where I mostly did research and concepting for emerging markets products. So I was based out of Tokyo, but worked worldwide. And after nine years at uh, Nokia, um, based out of Tokyo and then the last year at LA, um, I was hired into Frog to build up a global insights practice, um, which I did, and I spent four years there. Um, First two years based out of Shanghai, and then the last two out of San Francisco. And I was feeling a bit burnt out, as you might imagine. <laughs> but we had eight studios, and we had about 20 practitioners plus. We probably engaged about 200 people in the company in going in field in various shapes and forms. So not just researchers, but um, designers, strategists, brand specialists, technologists, and so on. And I decided to take a sabbatical um, and I was um, three months into the sabbatical, and then someone offered me a piece of work that I really, really wanted to take on. It was in Myanmar for a mm. wonderful client. And um, I asked myself, what what uh, infrastructure would I need in place to be able to take on the project and deliver very high-quality results? And so I started a studio, not quite knowing what that would really mean. Um, every year has been a fantastic learning experience and we now do consulting is our core but we also do publishing so we have a, our own imprint um, where we do client publications and um, we publish a few things ourselves and we have a few more publications coming in the next few months we have a luggage brand so we make our own field equipment um, for operating in often challenging environments and the final piece of it 
the last 60 months or so, we've um, been offering training, and that's built up very rapidly. So we run masterclasses, which is training on the Studio D methods, and we run three-day retreats. And this year we run two in Japan, mm. and one in Lebanon and one in Myanmar. And they attract people from around the world um, who want to travel to those places, take on the training, and then, um, and then explore the area. Um, and we've also started running expeditions. And so this year we run expeditions in the Pamirs and in Afghanistan. Well, what do you think uh, draws people to, um, to the kind of work that you do? Um, I think, so I've been, to answer that, I need to go back a little bit in time. And um, I think in the early 2000s, I started writing online when blogging platforms were um, starting to become popular. And it took about three years and I kind of found my voice in those three years. And then I, I did it for another seven years after that. I don't really do it these days. I, I write in different formats now. Um, and in that time, I got to understand a lot what people want to engage in, and also in the misconceptions of what they have about what the work is and what the work isn't. And um, you know, if you work for a corporation and you write about what you do, you're obviously very careful about revealing confidential information. Mm -hmm. So there's a fine line between being able to put enough out there to engage people in conversation and um, to share what you're passionate about. Um, and then actually revealing things that um, are company confidential. So I think one of the misconceptions of what people think I do is that they think I'm in field all the time. Um, and they think it's very open-ended research. And the reality is that, I mean, I spend between, normally between three and six months a year traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, last year was a bit more intensive, it was nine months traveling. Um, a percentage of which is field work, and um, almost everything that we do has a really intense focus, um, driven by client demands. Um, so I think you know, so people are drawn to the adventure. Um, I've written a lot online, and there's a, a community that has built up around that writing, um, and that has embraced that writing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think through that, I'm able to communicate the ethics and the tone and the approach and many things that I think people hanker for but are lost, particularly in corporate research. Um, because as corporations scale what they do, they often kind of lose sight of um, some of the kind of values that make that research valuable in the first place. Hmm. How would you define the concept of risk in doing fieldwork? the parties affected by it and how to address it uh, through the lens of your work that you've done so far? Sure, okay. Um, to explain that, I guess we need to start with the, f the field work that we take on is mostly corporate mm. uh, clients, uh, but we do non-profit, we've done some government work and we work with startups as well. So it's pretty broad in spectrum. Um, if you came to our website and and poked around, you'd assume that we were doing far more nonprofit work because that's the work that can be published. Mm -hmm. Most of what is and will remain um, confidential. Um, if I was to say what we specialize in, again, to be able to answer this, um, <clears throat> is you know, there's a lot of companies that can do 
ethno research in places like Milan, New York, London, Paris, Sao Paulo, and so on. Um, and we do our fair share of that. Um, but as a studio, we also specialize in working in very challenging environments and, and with difficult to reach demographics. So that could be communities um, at risk. Um, it could be distinct subcultures that are quite tightly defined. Um, but it could also be physical and geographical and geopolitical risk as well. So mm -hmm. we, we run re research in places like um, Myanmar, Zimbabwe, Somaliland, Afghanistan, and so on. Um, and in places where there's very limited infrastructure as well. So not necessarily electricity or running water in places like that. Um, and so that's the context to this. Um, you know, that given the diversity of experiences that we are likely to encounter and communities that we're going to engage in, we can't, we can plan the entire field study, but we have to recognize that so much of what we plan is going to be either out of date or we'll need to adapt to circumstances on the ground or that our initial assumptions were just naive um, in, in the way that we set things up. And so rec when you recognize that, it allows you to take a step back and think about building teams and the process differently. Um, I have a set of principles to, to operate by. And I think the most important principle, which is really to address the question, is the one where we put the participants' well-being first. And so if you don't know what to do in any given context, you can ask, well, what is the thing that is the right, what, what is the right thing to do by the participant um, that we engage in? And their well-being comes first, sometimes at the detriment of the team or um, the data that we collect. Um, but that's a great guiding principle, particularly if you, could, because as a studio, um, we build teams on a per-project basis. And so you may have people that are tasked with answering questions and figuring out problems or opportunities um, and may feel the easiest way to, to do that is to take shortcuts um, in the process and to get to the answers. Um, but if you, if you say upfront that our participants' well-being comes first, then um, that is a very strong guiding principle. Hmm. Um, the team's well-being comes second. And um, what I've learned is it, it can sound counterintuitive to say that the client comes third because obviously we put a lot of effort into client relations. But when it comes to data collection, if you put it in that order, then the quality of the data that you're able to collect is far higher because you're going to get far closer to, for want of a better word um, or phrase, uh, the truth. Um, or accuracy and so the client wins through that approach um, and we've turned down clients that um, tell us how to do the work um, often with the assumptions about particular processes hmm. so that's something that we don't compromise on yeah could you could you give an example from your experience of a of a fieldwork that you would define as as a high risk um I actually don't, don't think anything is particularly about high risk. Uh, there's, uh, there's higher risk. I wouldn't say necessarily high risk. So mm -hmm. um, 
with experience of operating across all markets and developed markets and emerging markets and integrated markets and so on, you could, you understand that risks can present themselves very suddenly in almost any context. Um, and so there's, there's having that diversity of experience and life experience to understand that. Um, I suspect that um, in most American cities probably have a higher risk profile uh, in terms of uh, violent crime, um, depending on the neighborhood that you're in, uh, compared to most of the places that we operate um, and the way that we operate because of how we build uh, the projects themselves. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of misconception, I think, about what risk is. Um, somewhere like Afghanistan, you know, it's you can talk about, the for example, the risk of kidnap, but actually probably Sao Paulo or Rio <laughs> would have a higher risk of kidnap than day, day kidnapping is relatively popular. You get kidnapped for a day and then held and then Lots of people get called and then money gets handed over and then you get dropped off later in the day. So um, that kind of risk is probably far more prevalent than the assumption of being kidnapped in somewhere like Afghanistan. It's not to say that there isn't risk there. There is. And there's a, a set of operating principles that we have when we, when we work in places like that. Um, but I think the, the there's a tendency to over-index on... Hmm dramatic and storyful risks like kidnap Hmm. and the reality is in most cases the highest risk is the use of transport that you use Um, and being in an accident and you can do everything right on your side but there are many other vehicles and pedestrians out there um, and unknowns and you're not capable of um, kind of managing those yeah, I, I, I love your answer, to be honest, because I was thinking what was my highest kind of risk that I would rem- remember from my own experience. And I, I spent a few months in a monastery in Nepal some time ago in this beautiful, beautiful space. And I had to take a taxi, which was a motorcycle, uh, down down the, from the mountain top to the bottom, <laughs> that monastery. And I think that for me was really, really, I, I really felt... Uh, risk there very strongly I mean, I would have never imagined that in that location that something like that would happen so it really resonated with me what you what you what you mentioned and I also lived in Sao Paulo um, and uh, other locations and I, I can totally yeah I, I, I totally agree um, recently you know as a studio we're maturing <laughs> I was like uh, last week I started actually writing a travel policy um, mm-hmm. for the studio and it's rather nice in the travel policy to, when talking about transport, to be able to, you know, you're not just talking about taxis and cars and buses and trains mm-hmm. or trams, yeah. but you're also talking about motorbikes yeah. and uh, mopeds and boda bodas and yaks mm-hmm. and horses and donkeys and the rest of it, because this is actually our reality of um, uh, what our teams, the choices that our teams have to make. Yeah. I, I think the really important aspect to risk and in writing the field study handbook which came out last year um, it forced me to think about systematically think about what risk is and um, and how we approach it but for anyone who works for an organization we're organizations particularly at scale they're responsible for uh, employees at scale and so they tend to put practices in place that are defined by regular um, travel Mm -hmm. and the thing is field work is not regular travel 
And if it is regular travel, then you're doing it wrong, quite frankly. If it's, if it's the same as everyone else does in your organization. So you have to treat it as a, as a separate thing. And as part of that, um, it's important for every member of the team to understand what their responsibility is in the choices that they make. And that the risk is not going to be covered by the organization. Mm. Um, they have to take on personal responsibility for that. Um, and so, for example, when I run projects in higher risk environments, um, I typically ask people in, um, whether they're interested in coming, but then talk through what the risks are mm. and um, give them a weekend to think about the project. Everyone says yes mm. to big kind of projects that I ask. Um, but then they go through this process of thinking about what the risks really are. Yeah. And um, people who are quite immature emotionally tend to tend their fr tell their friends that they're going to go on this thing. Um, and then um, they have a kind of a moment of elation and then they go into a pit of despair mm. after they realize what they're committing to. Um, when, when in reality, the very best thing that they can do is think about it, do some desk research, talk to people they know and trust, but um, in a very measured way, um, one or two people and ask their opinions and then come back. Hmm. Um, and, and I don't know whether it's coincidence, but I've found that the women that I ask are far more mature about understanding the risks than males who tend to gravitate towards the adventurous uh, side of it. I wonder if you have any tools to uh, to be able to anticipate that in one's behavior. Um, I, I remember uh, a few years ago, I went in the Amazon. Uh, from, um, I was living in Brazil and I, I wanted to do a week uh, trip uh, inside the Amazon uh, in one of those communities that was living there. And I had no clue. I, I, I First, I don't know how to swim. Um, And um, I was living on a on a boat for a week, and then going inside the Amazon, and in in quite quite tough environments, uh, both with food and with um, with weather conditions. <laughs> But uh, I could never imagine actually before that how different would is was from my current reality of living in Sao Paulo at the time. Um, I enjoyed it, but I I, I, can, I do recall that I put myself in some uh, in, in some situations that I, I might have avoided had I did my um, research properly beforehand. So, and I think it it, it is tied to my personality. I'm also adventurous, and I, I, I enjoy the thrill uh, before, but while I'm in it, it's yeah tough. Do you have some 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 advice or some tools for people like that that just um, have a hard time uh, pre-rationalizing uh, these type of situations? Yes. So um, the first is to um, understand the psychology of risk and the way we overemphasize certain things and emphasize other things. Um, uh, and actually in the handbook, um, there's a, a graph which describes the a very typical psychology of working in high risk environments and the emotional stages that people go through. And so the first is once you recognize that there are these stages, it helps you understand why you're feeling in a particular way, which then helps you process it. Um, another one is that we always hire a local, local team. So the, 
the professionals that are versed with the process of turning insight into innovation and ideation and concepts and so on um, are typically folks that we fly in. And uh, to complement that and to bridge to the local communities, we will always hire a local crew. And that's typically at least one fixer per location, mm. plus a guides. I occasionally hire local researchers. However, local researchers tend not to have the maturity of organizational understanding of the clients. Mm. Um, so it's easier to apply those um, skills in. Mm. Um, so the first thing is building the right team. And so there's a question of how do you actually do that? And I'll share how we do that in a moment. Um, the second thing is how you bring the international team and local team together to create an environment where they can talk um, with a high level of trust in each other's experience hmm. and to be able to make the right decisions. And the approach that we use in the studio that is very robust is something that called pop-up studios. It's, um, it's essentially we create a live workspace where the international team and typically the local team live together under the same roof. So I don't like putting people in hotels, I'd rather book a house. And um, I've run about 94 of these, 95 of these worldwide. Wow. Um, and I'm still learning about um, those spaces and how they work. Um, but the team that sits around the same table and spoons food from uh, the same bowl and mm. drinks water poured from the same jug and shits on the same toilet has a very different understanding of one another than a relationship that's based more on someone who hires subcontractors and meets in a hotel lobby. Yeah. Um, and the, we, we put a huge amount of emphasis on designing the research experience Hmm. Um, with an understanding, you know, applying our understanding of psychology and cross-cultural norms and and a whole bunch of other things uh, to create an environment where people can solve these problems together. Great. Um, I I would love to go deeper into that topic, but I want to ask you more about a specific topic, which is access. How do you particularly approach access in in your fieldwork? Access to whom and what? Um, Access to access to the to the population that you want to study the population that you want to understand the group the context yeah the first thing to recognize is that we're working at corporate time scales and mm. so that ranges from a month lead in through to arriving on the ground and having nothing set up and needing to get going within 24 hours um, and get access um, obviously, we like to plan ahead, but some clients are on very tight schedules and they pay us to go in and, and figure stuff out at very, very short notice. Um, in some markets, it's re- relatively easy to do. In other markets, it's not impossible to do well uh, at very short notice. But um, uh, we, the, the first thing is, if you have a, a local team, and you've picked that local team carefully in terms of understanding the networks and communities that they have access to, that is the starting point. Mm. Um, And so um, the key there is who can you identify and what what networks do they have access to? So for example, um, when we hire a team, 
we typically have one local person for each international person flying in. So let's say I've got a team of three flying in. We might have three or four locals working on the team. And the ideal is that those locals have networks that are not overlapping. So mm. they're high in places. Um, that's the starting point um, uh, for that. I, in all of the projects that I personally run, I've never used a recruiting agency. Many teams that do use recruiting agencies, yeah. totally familiar yeah. with, with the process and pros and cons of it, mm. but um, um, I've never needed, found the need to do that. Yeah. How do you find the locals? Uh, that, <laughs> so, I mean, that's a little, some of that is fairly straightforward, which is um, local fixers and guides typically start Uh, with the easiest thing, which is they tap their own network. Um, but once you understand how social networks work and how communities come together, um, then uh, it's relatively easy, particularly with things being online. Uh, in Even if a community isn't online, there are touch points to communities that are online mm. that, that you can go th mm. uh, through. So... Um, Uh, all of our fixers and guides are expected to and are required to go beyond their network. Um, sometimes that means going door to door. Uh, sometimes it means reviewing online communities yeah. uh, yeah. in different shapes within. Sorry, as a rule of thumb, mm. for every four in-depth interviews, one person will recommend through snowballing quality candidate. Mm. I, I understand all of these things have biases. And the assumption is that if you go to a recruiting agency, those biases won't be there. Um, from my experience of overseeing dozens of projects where, where recruiting agencies have been used, recruiting agency work is generally low margin. They're under a lot of pressure, and almost all of them will cut corners in various ways, and which then results in biases. And I would rather have biases that I know about that I can then work with the team to mitigate rather than have biases that I don't know about. Yeah. Totally agree. And and the first locals that you said at the beginning that you have um, two to three locals for a team of three, where do they come from? Do you, do that? Does the client provide them? Do you find them on your own? Uh, the fixers and guides. Uh, it's it's a ratio, typically a ratio of one to one or, mm -hmm. or just a one. So if we if we had a team of three, we'd have three or four. Yeah. Um, uh, again, that's some of the secret source of what we do. Mm -hmm. is how we identify those. I've been doing this work for 18 years, and I have a very good network yeah. of people around the world that I can tap, and even if they're not available, that can recommend. Um, but that said, we also have a process of reaching out to people, cold calling, essentially, to yeah. ascertain they're suitable. And it's actually, so I've been running masterclasses on um, the fundamentals of field research in the way that Studio D runs them. And one of the most popular sessions that we run, run within that training sessions is in engaging fixes and guides and how to do that. And I think the biggest challenge that people have is the mental block of why is this stranger going to help me out? <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, I've run... 33 of those training sessions in the last 18 months. We've trained over 700 people in Express Fair. And we kept on getting the same questions, particularly really related to fixes and guides. And so in January, we are publishing a new book, which oh, nice. is The Little Book of Fixes and Guides. Uh, no, sorry, The Little Book of Fixes. 
um, which is the process that we use and the challenges that you face. And there's lots of case studies and principles of operation and so on. So um, in January, uh, you'll be able to read that or your community will be able to read that. Oh, that's nice. So do you have a link to share with our audience uh, with this little booklet? In January, we will. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Um, so one other topic that I was interested to ask you more about is ethics. How do you um, address it in doing fieldwork, but also in uh, writing and delivering um, findings and evaluating their potential impact? So um, I'll take a step back from that question and reframe it slightly, but we'll address it also, is um, if we think about the quality of the data that we're bringing in to the study and how that data is going to be applied, um, it's often applied to creative endeavors, concepting and ideation, um, marketing brand, and so on. And the team that understands that that data has been properly sourced and feels proud about how it was obtained thinks and acts very differently when it applies that data to the things that it needs to be applied to. And so I treat deliverables on a project much like a meal. And I want everyone who sits around the table that is eating that deliverable dinner Uh, to understand the origin of all of the ingredients that go into that um, and the pros and cons of uh, or the strengths and weaknesses of that data, whether they are representative or outliers, um, but most importantly, whether it was uh, properly sourced and obtained and that we had the right, both legal and moral rights to that data. Um, That said, I think ethics is typically the hardest thing to get right. Um, I think a good project should present the team with plenty of ethical challenges, things that they're not quite sure how they should approach it. Um, because if you're confronted with these ethical challenges, it means that you're applying that data to things that will be socially disruptive in some shape or form or societally disruptive, right? Um, because um, most of our research is for thing, new things in the future in some shape or form. Um, and so in that sense, I think a good project um, should come with um, ethical challenges. And so the key for me is there is how do you get the international team and the local team to be able to have sufficient trust to be able to talk about those ethical issues in such a way that they're able to resolve them as a team. Um, I've seen so many corporations run research in such a way where they treat locals as subcontractors and people just to do the donkey work mm -hmm. rather than listening to their voices and their experience and perspective. And because they're in many cases they're under intense pressure to deliver and it's easy to apply process without necessarily realizing the impact that it has on the other members of the team or the communities that you're engaging in. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in, in terms of potential impact, um, and how do you design field work to force yourself to be confronted with those ethical issues rather than either not knowing about them or 
um, or sidestepping them and feeling like it's something that can't be solved. And so the first thing is um, deciding whether to take on the project in the first place. And so as a, as a studio, we, we, myself and my business partner, and then the people that we're thinking about engaging, we have conversations about um, the client and uh, what the project is likely to deliver and the consequences of that. Some of them are very straightforward and others are far more thorny. The second thing is ensuring that you have the right team or the optimal team. Um, so obviously there's an emphasis in the beginning on professional skills, but uh, on every single project we're considering the ethnicity, uh, gender, um, occasionally sexual orientation is important as well, um, upbringing um, and life experience. How, how do you deal with your own bias in uh, making those choices? In making which choices? Choices of what is ethical, what is not, what, what would be a potential impact or another of the result. Um, do you have some form of, you know, external advisors that support you or some other form of, yeah, making sure that your own narrative doesn't drive uh, the way you decide something is um, good or bad? Yeah. So there's different facets to that. I think the first one is that um, when we conduct research, we don't know what the answers are and we don't know what it's going to yield. And so that we maintain an open mind mm -hmm. to that. Um, and so and it, it's not to say that we don't bring our narratives to that. It can come out in many different ways. But um, the principle of being humble about what you know and don't know and being open to learning on every single project um, mm. is a starting point. Um, being brutally honest about intent as to why you want to take on a project. Um, and I see that playing out in two ways. The first is um, uh, in human-centered design, the assumption is that because it's human-centered design, which a lot of our projects uh, apply human-centered design principles, um, the assumption is that because it's that, it's inherently good, and that's complete bullshit. Hmm. Um, applied to things, as we've seen, I think, particularly over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of things that are very well designed, but still hmm. have significant negative consequences. So it's important for the team um, to be really brutally honest about their um, attempt, intent um, for why they're on the project. Um, another thing is, on a lot of the social impact work as well, 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 sorry, a lot of the international work and all the work that the studio does is international uh, in by nature and often comparative international research projects as well, is um, it's okay to want to have the experience of travel um, as part of what you want to get out of the project, <clears throat> even if it's a social impact project, it's okay for that. But you have to understand that that is one of your primary drivers uh, in that. So you have to be honest with yourself. Mm. Uh, um, there's two other things. So one is um, exploring dystopian scenarios as part of um, thinking about how technologies will be applied. Um, and the last one, the most important and most oft over overlooked aspect of this is doing a retrospective and um, revisiting past assumptions and over time seeing how that they played out. It doesn't mean that you can be right on every, you can get the ethics spot on on every single project that you 
the world is far more interesting and diverse. Yeah. So that to be cool. Um, but how do you ensure that the wisdom of what what is possible to learn learn is learned and then is documented and then is shared? Hmm. So retrospectives are very simple and doesn't take too much time. It's actually a lot of fun uh, to yeah. do as well. Yeah. Was time ever a, a limitation uh, factor in that in that process for you? Yeah, so um, all, all projects have time pressure. And if it isn't a time pressure, I think that's a problem in itself um, because time is a great force of prioritization. Um, and so uh, how do you want to spend your time? Um, uh, I guess... The environment in which the environment in which we create, particularly the kind of pop-up studio environment, um, where we're living and working together, and supports structured and unstructured time. And structured mm. time is stuff that you plan and it's meetings that you have, and that's really easy to do um, in any project. Um, but it's the unstructured time. It's the time around that. It's um, pe people waiting for. Um, vehicles to arrive. It's uh, breakfast. It's a late night whiskey on the deck overlooking a vista when the work is done for the day and the conversations that happen then hmm. um, where the normal rules of what you do and don't talk about um, on a project are um, challenged and people have far more kind of social interaction. Yeah. If you, if you can have both of those things yeah. in place structured and unstructured time, you're more likely to reveal and tackle and engage with uh, those uh, ethical issues. Yeah. But whoever's leading the project um, typically plans everything, um, but really needs to keep a pulse on what is not being discussed hmm. and understand that. Yeah. Um, I, I like to plan everything and then step away from that plan as much as possible. What, to see things as they naturally play out. Yeah. Because things that are planned feel like work. Things that are not planned often feels like hanging out mm. and yet can be incredibly productive. Um, and it really impacts team morale and energy and a whole bunch of other things, including what they're able to talk about. Mm. I love it. Yeah, I love this. Uh, it really, it, it really reminds me of um, ethnography, the way we, the way it's done in anthropology, um, mm -hmm. and this this pop up concept is just fascinating to kind of um, as as a as a tool of of, of uh, positive social engineering to a certain extent. Yeah, I love the term social engineering, positive social engineering, as in the term social engineering is is often considered ne negative mm. um, yet we are all social engineers yeah exactly exactly do you have um, a place where our listeners can read more about your pop-up concept uh, last year I wrote some, uh, well I took six years writing it but I published a book called the field study handbook mm -hmm. and there's an entire uh, chapter on pop-up studios um, so if you want to read about it that's the best place to read about it um, if you want to experience it, um, we apply the same principles of, for want of a better word, social engineering um, in the retreats that we run. And that's very deliberate, again, a very deliberate process mm -hmm. that plays out naturally. Um, 
in the four-day retreats that we run. And we'll be running four of these next year. Yeah, um, and, and they are on your website, right? The, the, they are. Yeah. Awesome. So there's studiodradioendurance.com. Yeah, we'll pop those links in the episode descriptions for all of our listeners to, 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 go, to go check them out if they're interested. Um, switching a bit the gears on this one, have you ever worked alongside social scientists? And if yes, um, how was that like? So the core of who we hire is designers, strategists, researchers, brand, brand specialists, technologists, mm -hmm. and so on. So mm -hmm. fairly traditional um, consulting uh, skills. Um, and within that, uh, the, within that cohort, um, there are people with backgrounds in domains such as sociology and psychology and anthropology. Um, I have hired um, anthropologists. Um, I've had mixed experiences, particularly with folks who are um, academically minded. Um, academic research is a very, very bit different beast to fast-paced mm -hmm. corporate, corporate uh, uh, anthro, in, in my experience. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but absolutely... Now the maybe uh, a sidestep to the question or a different tangent to it is um, a lot of people who work in qualitative research, I've noticed conversations come up about their relevancy in a world of quant and data mm. analytics and increasingly AI. And with the assumption with some that these skills are ones that will be outdated and they, they feel overwhelmed with the alternatives that organizations are turning to. Um, I take the opposite approach, which is um, I believe that the more data that there is out there, the more there is the need to mm -hmm. have people able to ask diverse questions. Yes. That data. Mm -hmm. data, if data has been collected through, particularly through quantum analytics, It is collecting data of things that are measurable, and we reveal the unmeasurable or the unmeasured uh, data, and we bring that perspective, and that's absolutely critical, particularly if you're designing anything that goes beyond a very narrow set of people in a particular geography, which so much work is um, globally focused, uh, applied to things, product services that are globally focused. I was I was reading this article at some point that that compared you know the ideal um, AI to a social scientist and it, it it asked the question can if we build a, a smart enough technology to completely remove all of our biases can it therefore ask better question than a social scientist which is to an extent inherently human so inherently trapped in their own biases mm -hmm. and also it, it's an interesting inquiry to make but so far what i've seen you know there are so many cases where we see that we build ai and we actually replicate our own biases and they become more visible through the yeah. through the algorithm rather than truly creating an algorithm that um liberates us or frees us from from our biases um Because, you know, you, you, you do have, particularly when you look into global products, right, which have to cater to the whole world, you, you do wish for the possibility to be able to be equally fair to everybody, you know, and, and is that even possible and what does that mean and is, does bias have a role to play in making that path a bit more difficult, you know. That was kind of like what that article was inquiring um, 
um, and I found interesting. I think I think particularly when you have to work with products that 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 span cultures and geographies, and everybody has their own individual truth, um, an individual sense of what is right or wrong or ethically correct, and you have to make choices as a product owner or designer or even researcher. Um, how do you make a fair choice, uh, and is there even possible to do so? No. Uh, often clients that come uh, that are not familiar with the studio and they, they ask what's the value of the qual work um, compared to what they know, which is typically quantum data mm. analytics. And the way I like to frame it is um, quantum data analytics will show you um, what people are doing and how, and only very well-run uh, qual research uh, can reveal why. Mm. And fundamentally... Does it matter to them why something is as it is? And in most cases, the answer is yes, it does matter. It's, that's That fundamental reframing is, is important. Yeah. What, what's interesting with AI is that we're seeing examples of things that seem to be optimal, um, on uh, outwardly uh, optimal in terms of the solution that they've come up with. Um, but people not even understanding why, um, the, why the rationale behind how mm -hmm. the, I reached that conclusion. And I think we're going to go through a phase where there will be a lot of solutions proposed and there will be inherent trust in the technology, um, in many cases wrongly. Um, but people will reach a level of comfort with not knowing. And so I think there's going to be an attitudinal shift where people are comfortable. People who previously said, I want to know why, and that's important for this, will be comfortable. A percentage of them will be comfortable not knowing why and just following the AI on itself. And that can be for reasons of efficiency or market gain mm. share or... Uh, short-term revenue, uh, and so on. Um, and I think that's going to lead to death by numbers. Yeah. They're, they're going to fill the numbers, and it's going to kill them, and it may kill us as well, um, unless we do something about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and on this note, because our discussion is, is very slowly approaching our time limit, I wanted to ask you if you can share something about what, what's next for you in the studio um, in the upcoming uh, period other than that wonderful um, handbook that you already mentioned? Oh, sure, yeah. So um, uh, I actually take out November and December this year to plan the year ahead. It's mm -hmm. quite lovely to do that. So um, in January, we're going to start a lovely project for a client in Myanmar. So we're going to be there running field research for a couple of months. And then... I'm going to be running a world tour of masterclasses, and we have two. One is uh, the fundamentals of field research, which talks about um, and shares the processes that we have in the studio. Another one is sense making for impact, because that question came up a lot um, in last year's masterclasses. Um, in July, the studio is running two expeditions to the premieres, and in August, we haven't announced this yet, but it's being announced later this week. Uh, we're running another expedition to Afghanistan for three weeks, um, and we're going to open applications for that. And then um, in October, we run four retreats. And in the coming year, there will be two in Japan, 
one in Nepal and another one in Lebanon. And actually going back to your, your earlier question of risk, the retreat in Lebanon is going to be a, um, the focus of that. Four days, 14 people, and the topic is operating in challenging environments. Oh. Uh, so is it, like, there's so much demand for that. Um, and we have two booklets coming out. So one is the little book of fix, fixes, and the second one is the Studio D Expedition Guide. Um, which is the ethos behind our expeditions and why we run them and what people get out of them. It's not just about the adventures. Uh, and that kind of gets us all the way up to November, so it's going to be a busy year. Yeah. That's, that's beyond all the other client projects that will come in. Wow, that's great. So I'll, I'll pop the links down below for our listeners that want to um, wanna have a look at those. I'm particularly actually now quite interested in the one in Lebanon. Okay. Yes, yes, uh, it sounds really great. And that is all work done in 10 months, right? Um, if you take November and December um, off for planning. Yes, and um, wow. I, know in the yeah. I know in the studio we're only two people, right? It's uh, myself and my business partner. But we have a really wonderful community of people around us and collaborators. And it's thanks to my business partner and to that community that we're able to do all of this. Yeah, well, I, I, I find it fascinating and, you know, thank you so much for, for giving us the time to speak uh, about your project. Um, I'm, I'm sure our listeners uh, have enjoyed it just as much as I have. Um, and I hope to be able to see you at one of those retreats next year. Yes, uh, I look forward to it. <laughs> and thank you for the time uh, to, to run this. I appreciate it. And say hi to the community, yes. uh, the Hollywood community. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.